Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss Russia's latest strikes across the country, while in Germany, the Munich Security Conference gets underway. And we talk to Ukrainian journalist Maria Romanenko and her partner, Jez Myers, about their journey to the UK, their work with Ukrainian refugees, and the cultural challenges faced by those making Britain their home. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 17th of February, day 359, and joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols and our guests, Maria Romanenko and Jez Myers. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Well, hi, David, and hi, everybody. It's been a day of continued extreme violence around the Donbass and a lot of diplomacy as well. So firstly, in the Donbass, a number of civilians were killed uh, and others wounded by Russian rocket attacks thought to be barrel artillery, so normal tube artillery and grad rockets fired at uh, Bakhmut. Uh, yesterday, I'd say at least five dead and we're told nine wounded, but those numbers are going up. And the prosecutor general, Ukraine's prosecutor general, says he's going to, they're going to launch criminal proceedings into the attack because it was clearly a civilian target. Elsewhere on the front, slightly further south, so a bit further to the southwest around the town of Vuladar, the spokesman for the Ukrainian armed forces there saying that Russia has shifted tactics slightly, scaled down the number of assaults uh, attempted at night. Now, we know that the the forces in that area are thought to be regular Russians, i.e. mobilised and, and conscript soldiers, not not the Wagner group. Wagner's round Bakhmut area. Vuladar was the, was, was the regular Russian uh, military. Now, they are They've been recently mobilised and conscripted, so they are they're they're not as experienced as the Wagner fighters, and we're having much less success, partly as a, as a result of that. So now, whether or not that is part of the cause for this um, this change in tactics, we don't know. But it, it 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 Russia has not achieved any kind of measure of success down in Vuladar, and um, that looks likely to continue. Separately, today's British Defence Intelligence report is is trying to put a figure on casualties. Now, it's always very difficult to try and talk about casualty numbers, but they've said that they think Russia has lost between 175,000 and two to 200,000 casualties. Now, casualties are dead, wounded, captured and missing. Uh, but they do put a figure on, they think, around 60,000 killed. And what they're saying is that's a very high ratio. So say 60,000 killed let's say 200,000 total casualties i mean that's that's about one in four which is a high ratio of dead to to wounded missing and captured and they are suggesting this is british defense intelligence are suggesting it's the lack of medical care 
that is that is um, the cause for that. And they say, quote, by modern standards, these figures represent a high ratio of personnel killed compared to those wounded. This is almost certainly due to extremely rudimentary medical provision across much of the force, unquote. They also went on to say that the Wagner group, the um, the mercenary group fighting largely around Bakhmut, they've deployed a huge number of convicts, which we know they've been emptying, Progosian's been going around emptying the uh, the, the prisons, the, the deal is do six months service and then you have your your sentence quashed i.e if you're still alive in six months you have your sentence quashed whether or not they 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 live up to that that deal but it's not a it's not a great one if you're still alive in six months but mod british mod is saying that they think wagner has suffered about a 50 percent casualty rate as i said it's not just dead that's dead wounded missing and captured but 50 percent is is a huge number and just separately on the on the diplomatic front, so Keir Starmer, who is the leader of Britain's Labour Party, the the, the opposition here in in the UK, and on current polling, uh, likely to be the next prime minister unless uh, unless something pretty significant happens. We are due an election here, the latest in the UK, and the latest in, by January 2025. Now. It's very unlikely that there would be an election in in January. They, governments don't like doing it in in winter because you don't really get the vote out. And also January is just a you know, it's pretty bit of a crim month just after Christmas. So in all likelihood, it's going to be sometime before then, and probably not in the immediate run up to to Christmas. So we're looking like the back end sort of summer autumn of twenty twenty four. So that's not that's not far away. The Labour Party is ahead, well ahead of the Conservatives at the moment in the polls. So Keir Starmer could well be the the Prime Minister of Britain quite soon. He was he's in Ukraine today on his second trip. He met President Zelensky, and um, he affirmed that Britain's Britain's support for for Ukraine under his stewardship, if he was if he was the the Prime Minister, would not change at all. Separately, we've got who else? We got we got Lukashenko, Alexander Lukashenko, President of Belarus. He is in Moscow today with Putin. Now. Whether that is because of or or just coincidental, Lukashenko yesterday invited President Biden to Minsk. Biden is is due to go to Poland next week, and uh, and on the back of that, uh, Lukashenko was saying, "Well, why, why is he going to Poland? Why don't why don't we have him here? We can all we can all sit down and we can uh, we can sort out Ukraine, sort the war out, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. He didn't say war, but you know he was talking about that. He said, quote, we are ready to receive him. That's Biden. We're ready to receive him in Minsk and have a serious conversation. If he wants peace in Ukraine and even Putin will fly to Minsk and the three of us will meet here, two aggressors and a peace loving president, unquote. Now, he didn't then say which which were the two aggressors and who was the peace loving president. But we can we can uh, discuss that amongst ourselves. Uh, I will take a little pause there. There's other bits and pieces going on which we need to need to speak about. Anthony Blinken's made some interesting comments reportedly Politico saying about Crimea we can come back to that a little bit later but uh, I will just take a breath there well thank you very much Dom for that Maria and Jez thank you very much for joining us I know we want to speak about quite a bit but just to start us off can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you came to be in Manchester tell us the story of the past of the past 12 months for you Hello, everyone. I am Maria Romanenko. I come from Kiev, from Ukraine, where I lived uh, until February, late February 2022, even though I did study in the UK before, but that was a while back. On February 24th, I was woken up by my British partner, Jez, who's also on this Twitter spaces. And um, we were in the Kiev region, stayed at my dad's place. Um, Jez woke me up saying that bombs were being dropped across the country. I couldn't quite believe it. You know, I was still very sleepy and sort of not understand what's going on. And I went on my Twitter and I saw the multiple reports. And what was surprising, that it wasn't just in the East, which where we had the warfare since uh, 2014, but it was everywhere. And it was so shocking and quite surreal to see. And uh, Des was adamant that he wanted to leave because Ukraine is not his country. He didn't want to be caught up in a war in a country that's not his own, but also because he's Jewish and his whole family history, you know, he says he's alive today thanks to people in his family history making the decision to leave before it was too late. So he was adamant that I'm leaving, you can come with me or not, but I'm leaving regardless. And I had about an hour to make that decision whilst uh, my dad and him uh, and Jazz went to a petrol station to get some petrol. My dad very kindly agreed to drive Jazz to Lviv. And I just basically, I didn't know what to do, but I decided to at least follow him to Lviv and then see what happens there. And maybe go back with my dad. My dad never had an, any intention to to cross the border or leave. Uh, he's very patriotic. He joined his um, 
territorial defense forces and the first days protecting his region when it was occupied. So we ended up going to Lviv. That took us 10 hours. We saw many, many people doing the same journey. There were tanks going in the other direction. Uh, I could see it out of my back window. It was quite a surreal experience. It was something that I saw in the Independence Day parade, military parade, but definitely not as a real thing. People just going to war. And then we came to Lviv, we spent a couple of hours there, got a bit of sleep, but we were woken up by hearing a fighter jet overhead. We descended to a bomb shelter, ended up being a Ukrainian plane, so it was all right. And then we went to the border and that was a very long journey as well. It took us six hours just to get from Lviv to the border and normally it takes just over an hour, but there were so many cars and there were 19 kilometers before the, the border itself. The cars just stood still and there were one lane turned into four lanes. People were just trying to use the dirt track and the other lane going the other direction just to get there faster. We managed to get out after six hours just because we used a long cut and we tried to cross through a different like border check and they wouldn't let us through. But then they found out that Jez was British and the friend who was driving us to the border had a British passport as well because he's from Northern Ireland. So he had a UK passport and uh, they were like, well, as a thank you for the UK doing so many good things for Ukraine, we'll let you through, but we're not really supposed to do it. So that saved us lots of time. We got to the border and that was like a pedestrian crossing border between Shehenyi and Medica. Uh, and we started queuing there and it took us 23 hours to to do that and we saw some horrible scenes i think jazz maybe can tell a bit more about what happened there uh yeah thanks thanks maria yeah so i'm i'm jazz i'm manchester born and bred mancunian um and i was doing dual living in between kiev and manchester so i was with maria at the start of the all art invasion when we arrived at the border there were thousands and thousands of people there um as maria mentioned it took us 23 hours to get across what's not conveyed is the fact that there was little to no organization to get out and people were just simply queuing and being crushed in areas just to get out so so our actual journey involved standing up for 23 hours with no toilet facilities no food no water we queued all through the night temperature dropped to minus four degrees there, there was awful awful crushing throughout the time and and we saw lots of unsavory things there was fighting there was shouting there was pushing and it's not to mention the the other issues such as it's things like um maria started her period whilst we were queuing to get out and of course there was nowhere for her to go so she she simply had to bleed through her jeans eventually we made it into poland and the sense of relief that you have when you when you make it through a traumatic event we got on the other side and we were just met by an an overwhelming side of of, sight of generosity where people were offering lifts to wherever you wanted to go in poland they were holding up signs saying, i have three spaces going to warsaw i have two spaces to crack off i have 10 spaces to to go to to dance and it was fantastic and then we were provided with sandwiches and coffee and it was it was Possibly, it was the cheapest instant coffee that you could ever possibly imagine, yet equally the greatest cup of coffee that we've ever had. The problem that we then faced was how do we get Maria from Poland into the UK? Maria had applied for her visa sometime earlier, but it turned out that the Home Office had actually lost her visa. They'd sent it to Kiev and we weren't able to pick it up because the visa office had actually shut. So we stood outside the British Embassy and we, we spoke to them. We went to Warsaw and we had a chat with them and they said, well, there's not a lot we can do. At that moment, Boris Johnson and Liz Trust decided to turn up and they drove past us and didn't really fancy talking to us very much. So we spoke to the media and the media sort of we got about 10 organisations to phone up the Home Office and all saying, we're, we're writing this article on this couple. Can you give us an explanation of where the visa's up to? And eventually in time, we got a phone call saying that Maria had been granted what's known as a visa waiver, which actually isn't a real thing. It's just you turn up at the airport, you turn up at passport control, and they say to you, there you go, we will let you in. So so we, we dealt with that. And I'd love to say it was all smooth sailing and, and we got in perfectly well. But of course, when we actually arrived in England, because Maria didn't have a visa, she was initially detained and then questioned by counter-terrorism police before, after another three hours, we were finally uh, allowed to go into the country. So 
that's how we made it in. It sounds like it was, a, as you said, a traumatic and a, and a quite a chaotic experience. And we'll, we'll come on to, I think, some of the things that you think the government could improve later. But can we talk a little bit about your time in Manchester now? Part of what you do is, is welcome and help Ukrainians who've moved to the UK. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do to, to, to welcome them and to help them settle in and some of the issues you face? So I think, well, the stories of the journeys of people coming here into the UK, I think they can be split into three sections, really. So the first one is kind of like ours. You know, these are the people who got out very early. They got into the car, they got into trains and they might have had a difficult journey out the, the way we did, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be something where you actually, most cases, it wouldn't be where you actually experience the bombs, the bomb shelters, because you leave so early. So it's rather, it's more of a logistical issue rather than a safety issue. And the second group is probably the ones who waited a couple of days and they, they had a really tough time leaving because they, these people would have come from somewhere like Mariupol or Sumy or areas in the north of Ukraine, south, east, where it got really bad very, very quickly. So I know a couple of stories of, uh, I know a woman who left from Sumy and Sumy was uh, occupied and the centre of the city was actually occupied as she was leaving and they had to drive on these bridges. They were constantly bombed by Russia and she came with her uh, young daughter and the daughter just basically looked at her in the car and she was like, Mom, we're not going to die, are we? Um, so it just you hear these different stories and I know other stories of people in Kherson that waited a, a bit more to get out and then it was nearly impossible to get out. So these are quite the stories that were of people that it took like a week or something to get out and sometimes even longer and some of those people didn't even make it alive because in the heat, you know, if they waited a couple of months, then it would be already to spring, summer, and in the south of Ukraine, it gets really hot in the summer. Some of these people didn't even survive the journey because uh, they died in the car or they, they were shelled by the Russians. And I think, Des, do you want to talk about the third? Yeah, sure. So the the, the final lot are those that were, it, it, for all intents and purposes, they were okay. They had longer time to make their decision. So you have people like Say, for example, Maria's mum, she was safe just before the, the start of the all-out invasion. She was in Kiev region, about an hour and a half south of, of Kiev, but she, she was relatively safe bar, you know, lots of, of air raid sirens and, and things going overhead. Um, and then she left sort of a couple of months later. And, and again, by that stage, they had the logistics down, they had everything going. And, and it was still a long journey and it was still stressful. But it was it was relatively comfortable. One of the things I certainly want to touch upon, though, is is that when we were queuing and when we were getting crushed and, and really, really struggling, we, I certainly didn't know whether I, I would survive because I, I was on my own at that stage. Maria had gone ahead of me. Um, and one thing that I wanted to mention was that we, we met a lot of people fleeing the country and wanted to talk about refugees. And, and one thing is that, we actually found out is, is people say, well, why do people want to come to Britain so much? Why do you want to come here? And what we actually found out was that when you're leaving a country with nothing, and we saw on our journey, we saw women having to, to unload their small suitcase and put whatever they could into a carrier bag. So their, their entire life's possessions were reduced down to a carrier bag. Um, and, and we found out that you, essentially you want to go anywhere that you have a slight advantage. So if you know a few words of English or you have a child that studied some English at school, that's, that's a huge benefit over going to France or Germany. If, you, if you've got a, a friend in England, a, a distant relative, that's your advantage. And then there were some sort of intangible ones, which is Maria certainly met with somebody who was saying, well, England is far enough away to be safe because certain, certain people didn't want to go to Poland in case Putin invaded or attacked there as well. And I think for me, certainly the final one that I heard, which um, I think surprised me, was, was the people turning around to us and saying, Boris Johnson is a good man and he will look after us. And so uh, certainly, you know, the reason that we found that, that people wanted to come to Britain was, was you know, very, very strange and, and a, a myriad of reasons. Yeah, because you, you, that was the other question about how we're helping them. And if you want me to, uh, to move into that, if that's OK. Yeah. Yes, yes, please. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, well, since when I got here, I obviously had a couple of weeks when I just had to take a bit of a breather. And at the same time, we were doing lots of media interviews and things like that. And it was quite, you know, the first couple of weeks were certainly blur and, and it was all while 
taken in what's going on in my country and worrying about my family who were all in the Kiev region and Kiev region was occupied. But I tried to, and then, you know, there was this realization that I can actually help people because I'm here. And whilst I would prefer to be in Ukraine and whilst I didn't want to be in the UK under such, such circumstances, I can help people because I went to a university in the UK before I did my A-levels here. My English is uh, fluent and I know have some knowledge of the country and I have support that I need. I have my partner here. So many Ukrainians come here and they don't they don't know anyone here. They don't speak much English. They've never been to the UK. It's a completely new environment for them. So I was trying to think how I can help. And one of that thing was setting up the free walking tours uh, of Manchester for Ukrainians. I contacted the free Manchester walking tours company and I was like, would you like me to translate into Ukrainian? We can do this for Ukrainians. And they were like, love that idea we thought how we could help and now you basically told us the answer so we did a few of those i've so far introduced more than 400 ukrainians to manchester telling them about manchester history about how important manchester is um, and that was very interesting but i also did interpreting in other circumstances i basically registered with a couple of uh, interpreting agencies and used my fluency in english and ukrainian to help other people uh, navigate the british system in healthcare, housing and uh, whereas we also set up some WhatsApp groups where we help both hosts and English families who are hosting Ukrainians, understand Ukrainians, help them and do some translation sometimes, but also help Ukrainians who are here find their way to, to the bank, to the GP, basically signposting them in a way. And we kind of build this like network uh, around our area where we help uh, Ukrainians who are in our area to like introduce them to each other and find hosts for them. I've also done many, many talks at different places, uh, including the University of Manchester, where there was the first Ukrainian student conference taking place in October, and then done talks in cha charity events at a, a couple of synagogues. And obviously I've been just reporting a lot and writing stories and just showing up and kind of talking about Ukraine for the people who can't really talk because they unsafe and um, just be in a phase and kind of represent my own country. There's quite a lot to, to, to get in there, I think. So could I ask, on your walking tours, are there particular areas that Ukrainians are particularly interested in Manchester that, that, that they want to know more about, or particular things that, that, that they're not particularly interested in? I'm, I'm sort of interested in the, how, how these cultures are coming together and, and how you navigate that. Uh, yeah, sure. So I think, yeah, one thing definitely that many, well, all Ukrainians probably don't realize how special Manchester is. Uh, I didn't realize it myself until I went to my first walking tour as a, you know, as a, as a to listen, not to do it. That was back in, uh, I think, 2021. And I absolutely loved it. And I was like, wow, so there's so much history in Manchester. And it's not just a history that belongs to Manchester, but it's the history that belongs to the whole world, such as the start of the suffragette movement, industrial revolution. You have so, you know, Manchester has so many things it can offer to the world and has offered to the world. Uh, there are definitely some parts that Ukrainians don't care much Um about Manchester, such as such as its music scene. So there's a bit in the walking tour where we ask, where we name Manchester bands like Joy Division, you know, Oasis, and uh, just ask people if they heard of them, and nobody's heard about any of them. And I've noticed that even Oasis, the younger generations definitely don't even don't know who that is. So uh, there's it's interesting how some parts that are so important to Manchester, Ukrainians don't really care about. But then there are other parts, such as the IRA bomb that destroyed uh, most of the most of central Manchester. I think Ukrainians certainly would have never heard about that but also they find it interesting how it helped the city rebuild itself and how the people united same with the ariana grande bombing because ukrainians experience similar things you know some of those all those ukrainians who attend they come from different parts and certainly some of them have had their home destroyed or the whole city destroyed or most of the city and hearing about manchester experience experiencing a similar thing in the past uh I think that gives them some hope and the same with like the Peterloo massacre. They can relate to it because we had the Euromaidan revolution in 2013, 2014. Um, so I think those things where you see how Manchester United and the whole community united, I think they of more interest uh, rather than the music scene and all of that. And so we had to adjust our tours as we, as we heard that feedback. That's really interesting. Jez, do you want to add anything to that? We actually genuinely covered sort of there are obviously, I think things we'll probably talk about in a, in a bit about the problems that 
they've faced and, and certainly the cultural differences. I think we'll probably come on to that because there are some interesting quirks, shall we say, in, in, that we've noticed or I've noticed between Ukrainians coming here. And the one thing I would certainly sort of say ahead of anything is, is that Ukraine is such a huge, huge country and there's a massive difference between somebody in their early 20s from Lviv and Western Ukraine, right next to the border with Poland and you know, somebody in their late 60s from Mariupol. It's two, it's two completely different cultures and, and the generational gap is huge. But um, no, no, carry on, please ask, ask us more. Well, let's, yeah, let's go on to, I mean, Maria, you were talking about part of what you've been trying to do, you and Jez, is signpost for Ukrainians coming to the UK, you know, where to get to the bank, how to, you know, how to go to the GP, all that kind of stuff. So could you go into a bit more some of the issues that um, Ukrainians are finding? And are there areas that you think the UK government could could do more and, lo- and local authorities could, could be better in? Um, I think I'll take this one because uh, I'm, I'm uh, shall we say, a, a little more forthright. Um, so so the, when they first arrived, I, one of the big things that we had were very critical of the Homes for Ukraine scheme because we felt that all of mainland Europe was offering visa-free travel and visa-free access. Uh, and, and the UK government at the time wasn't, wasn't doing so much. Um, it's a double-edged sword, though, I think I, I've, I've learned over the last year. On the one hand, it limits those who can come here to those who've got a sponsor. But in the same way, you know, people have Ukrainians have come here and they have claimed to sign, but although only a few hundred of them. So it, it kind of works a, a much better, more comfortable system versus actually claiming asylum where, you know, Ukrainians can come here and they can work once they actually get here. And the standard of accommodation is, is generally better. One of the big issues, though, is certainly the way Homes for Ukraine has been presented and how it's worked in reality so hosts were they, they were promised wraparound support from councils and that simply hasn't happened whether it's i guess it's because of the workload and the intensity required as as you mentioned bank accounts doctors jobs everything like that there's there's been a huge administrative burden placed on hosts that they weren't initially told they would have to do they were told it would be accommodation and perhaps a little food um, so, so that's caused some issues and, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's worked through that. But there's also the other issues where they're the same issues that are faced by anybody who, whose primary language isn't in English or is, is coming to England for the first time. So, for example, when Maria's mum came here and we thought, well, this would be great, the, the, the government wants Ukrainians to work, they've got the right to work, so there'll be fantastic language provision. And, and we went to our local language centre and they said, yes, we can help you. We offer two half days a week. And we can think, well, surely she'll be in full-time language lessons, but that there's, it doesn't really touch the sides. It, it You know, on, on that basis, without significant external help, it would take her years to get her English language skills up to a, a customer-facing level. Um, other signs, um, unrecognised qualifications. So you, uh, as, as has often been the case, and it's, it's not unusual if you're a doctor or a nurse or, or a lawyer or, or whatever, you've got significant professional qualifications, that they're, they're not transferable. And equally, there's not enough intensive support into training or work. This is, again, nothing unusual. It's, it's a standard problems that are being faced by anybody who's, who's coming to the country who doesn't know the language. Um, there's also the wider problems um, that the general British public face at large. So there's been huge struggles with finding a dentist. Um, Maria's mum, for example, couldn't find a dentist. Um, so she went back to Ukraine to see a dentist. And within three days of returning, a missile struck less than a mile away from where she was. Um, Beyond that, there's a lack of high-quality interpreters from Ukraine. Um, companies, certainly because of uh, strain on public finance, they often go with the lowest bidder, which means that the companies then can't pay the highest-quality interpreters, which means that they often use uh, unqualified interpreters, which is a real shame. Um, as mentioned before, there's the adjustment to British culture. 
And then you have the, the biggest struggle of all, which is 95% or so of Ukrainians who are here, unlike refugees who, who can't go home because they, they will likely be killed. The Ukrainians here want to go home. They are literally sort of looking and doing everything with one foot out of the door the entire time. And so you have the hosts who are saying, you're here, it's an opportunity, make the best of it. And you have Ukrainians kind of going, I want to make the best of it, but really, I just want to go home. I want to get out of this country. And I'm really grateful for being here, but it's not my home. That's really interesting. Thank you, Jess. Maria, do you want to add, in, add anything to that? Yeah, well, I, I think what Jess pointed out, it depends with Ukrainians coming here to the UK. It depends what age they are and where they come from. And certainly, yes, if they're from the West, they could have probably traveled more around Europe because it's much closer. People who live in Viv you know, going to Poland was such a regular thing for them before the full-scale war. So um, I think it depends on the age. And I can see from my mum that she's, you know, she's 58 and she's... Uh, struggling with understanding the British culture in many ways but there are there are definitely some things that are quite different uh, what I found that's uh, in my communication with hosts and uh, with Ukrainians and that's for example children's bedtimes the Ukrainians who are staying with English families here and they with children they allow their children to stay up as long as they want in Ukraine you don't really have set bedtimes you normally the children just go to bed at the same time as you do and here in the UK that's not the case so that uh, causes some arguments between the families, the Ukrainian and the British families. Um, there's a, more of a throwaway culture in the UK, I think, uh, which is in some ways it's good because people, you know, they buy something, they no longer want it, they just give it away. By throwaway, I don't mean necessarily put it in the bin, but as in like just take it to a charity shop. And that's not the case in, the, in Ukraine. In Ukraine, people hold on to their stuff and just hoard things for as long as they can. So that works quite well, I think, for Ukrainians when they need new items, when they need furniture, if they move into uh, a new place they start renting they can certainly get like a sofa bed or a kitchen table for quite cheap or for free like I was given a full bag of clothes when I left because when I was leaving I didn't realize that I was actually leaving the country I thought I would be back very soon I thought I was just uh, going away for a short time so I had like three very warm jumpers and that's it and when it came to summer I just had nothing to wear so there was a woman in my area who just gave me like a massive bag of clothes probably like 50 items and I'm still wearing this cloth now you know that was uh, um, that was very good for me but also there's uh, things that I think a lot of people struggle with that like wait times for uh, healthcare when you because there's such a, so much burden on the NHS at the moment that Ukrainians can when they need a doctor they can see a doctor within days but here in the UK sometimes you're told like seven months or eight months or a year even and I think that's something they're not used to and can cause a bit of frustration I think there's a lot of love of letters just sending letters like the the NHS will send you a letter about something and in Ukraine almost everything is like digital you can book a GP appointment uh, online you can uh, see all your history your medical history online everything is just digital and i think a lot of ukrainians find it frustrating that they need to receive these letters and uh, deal with these letters so these are the ones that i think i uh, noticed um yeah can i ask you both is there any i mean you've touched on it a few times maria that the sort of the, there are aspects of british culture that that ukrainians who are here find quite difficult and you've talked a little bit about them is there anything that you know they find completely bewildering. I wonder if Jazz Jazz would speak to this. Is, is there anything you really have to sort of explain? And like, 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 what are the sort of moments where where points of views just completely diverge? Or you know, is it is it food? I mean, when I was in Ukraine, Dom and I were in Ukraine last July. We we were fed absolutely excellently, and I, I sort of wonder how how Ukra- Ukrainians feel about some of the British food they eat. Um. So so yeah. There's there's, there's that. Um, I'm I'm glad that you were fed so wonderfully in Ukraine. Um. I will probably get lambasted for this. Um, I am not the greatest fan of Ukrainian food. Um, I think primarily because I don't eat pork and I'm not a fan of, of sour cream. So my, my options are somewhat limited. Though Crimean food is absolutely phenomenal. And um, if, if anybody ever gets a chance to try Crimean food, I, I would absolutely recommend that. Um there's there's a couple of things in terms of food. Um, certainly because we've had Maria's mum who's living with us, who who is, uh, I'd say, sheltered in terms of her her food choices. So 
Um, every sort of every evening at five thirty, six o'clock, she goes to our local Morrison's and she picks up the yellow sticker bargains. And that's not really a thing or a culture so much in, in Ukraine. So the fact the fact she can get discounted fruit and veg, she absolutely loves. Um, she, she has a great time. She she comes back having spent a couple of pounds every evening with with bagfuls of, of discounted food. Um, one of I think one of my favourite stories um, that that we've enjoyed is that we Maria and I were in our local town and we invited um, her, her mum to join us for Weatherspoon's breakfast um, because we ha- we happened to be there and and we we got her the breakfast and we got her a cup of coffee and when she'd finished her cup of coffee they said to her oh you get free refills by the way at which point her eyes lit up. And she worked her way through the entire milky coffee selection. So she actually had six different coffees, hot chocolates and lattes and, and cappuccinos. After the sixth one, her eyes were genuinely lit up. Um, I think it's, it's fair to say. Um, and we thought, well, this is brilliant. She, she's always in the house. We can use this as an excuse for her to get out and, and get involved in, in British culture a bit more. So, well, you know, you can come here whenever you go to your universal credit meeting, whatever, you can just pop here and you can sit out. They've got a nice beer garden. You can read a book and do that. And, and we thought, this is fantastic. At which point she turns around to us and, and says, £1.25 for coffee? I'm not spoiled, you know. And Maria and I just looked at each other bewildered because to us, £1.25 for unlimited coffee is, is, is the bargain of the century. But it's, it's, it's understanding that, that difference in culture. Um, and then there's, there's been certainly interesting food times because, like I said, she goes to Moss and she gets the yellow stick bargain. She gets what's cheap. She doesn't necessarily know what she's purchasing. So there was certainly the time where we came downstairs to find her eating Yorkshire puddings um, with yoghurt. And we're not really sure what was going on there. And then finally, um, I made her a Sunday roast once and Maria got a really, really nice glass of wine. And she pretty much completely ignored the glass of wine because she found that she loved gravy. And she was she was slurping down the gravy like I've, I've never seen anybody, uh, you know, go for gravy before. So she absolutely loved that. So so it's it's learning about certain British foods and exposing them to her and, and she, she's she's having a great time in terms of food and um i think certainly you know uh, cheese is one of the big things in britain that she's absolutely loving that she doesn't really have access to cheese is very very expensive in ukraine because it's all imported that's really really interesting and i wonder whether later in the show notes we're going to have to put a few pictures of things like yorkshire puddings and 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 things you've mentioned just just so our international listeners can get a sense of what a weatherspoon's breakfast might might look like and i would just add jez i actually um used to work in a cheese shop uh, as a sort of you know for, for a couple of months at university so i would add to everybody listening and especially ukrainians british cheese is absolutely wonderful there are huge huge variety anyway um Maria, do you want to add anything to that? That's sort of Jez's perspective of some of the some of the things he's seen. And I wonder we've talked about the we've talked about the issues and the problems that um, the Ukrainians coming to the UK have, have faced. Um, but you must, like Jez, you must have seen heard some some positive stories as well and positive experiences. Uh, yeah, well, there's been a few um, positive experiences, of course. There's uh, some people. I mean, as Jez rightly pointed out, that most Ukrainians living here they live with one living with one foot out the door. That's the same case for my mom. They find it hard to set up a life. But I think the positive stories that we hear normally, apart from some rare exceptions, where somebody I know somebody who found a job as like some sort of stylist in a in a in a clothes shop that sells like retro clothes, and she's absolutely loving it. She's posting like videos and photos from the shop every day when she's at work. Uh, but uh, I think the vast majority of people who settle in very easily would come from the IT sector. So Ukraine has got very developed IT sector, and normally people working in in IT in Ukraine they also uh, speak very good English because they have to use English for talking to various people in their job. And when they come to the UK, they find it super easy to get a job. You know, pretty much within hours, they'll send a couple of CVs and they'll be invited for all the job interviews. So these are the people who normally do really well are the ones who um, have have had, you know, the ones who come from IT sector for other jobs, it's uh, more difficult. And there's people, I think, children who get into school and really like the school. I think that's uh, possibly some of the positive stories where they, they can go on and live here and actually make uh, some impact. Although from my experience, even the students who 
I met during the University of Manchester student conference that was held in October. Even the ones who are studying here now, for example, they study marketing. They say, yeah, I studied marketing, but as soon as Ukraine wins, I will go back and help uh, the country rebuild. So it varies. Uh, some people settle in very easily. Some people settle in a bit more difficult. And it also depends, you know, also due to the fact that a lot of women come in here, they have their husbands uh, back at home, so they can't properly commit to life in the UK. Can I just move away in terms of questions from from that just towards, I mean, Maria, you, you've been reporting and th- thinking about Ukraine, you're obviously from Ukraine. Jez, you've, you've, you've lived there as well. Um, we're nearly... We're nearly at the sort of the, the, the horrible anniversary of the, the, the full scale invasion. What misconceptions and, and, and myths even do you think still persist potentially in, in Britain about um, thinking about Ukraine? And you know, what, what would you want to address or correct? I think uh, I think the biggest one is that people didn't really take much interest in Ukraine before 2022. So they're not necessarily uh, familiar with the history of Ukraine. They don't know how far back it stretches. Uh, I mean, if you listen to Putin, it apparently only goes back to 1922 or whatever when Lenin created Ukraine. But we'll stick with uh, facts here. So, you know, how uh, Kiev, Kiev and Rus were there from the 5th century and, and uh, Kiev and Rus started growing and developing around uh, Kiev and there was a lot of trade, there was a lot of culture, Ukrainian identity goes back to all this stuff, and that uh, Ukrainian culture actually precedes Russian culture, and Moscow was uh, founded by Kiev and Prince. Uh, so I think there's a lot of, there's a lack of understanding of Ukrainian history, and there's this kind of view, very simplistic view of the events in the last uh, nine years. Um, People just kind of think um, that there was the Euromaidan revolution and that led to annexation of Crimea. And then there was this, all of a sudden there was a full scale war. But in reality, that's missing the bits where Russia was preparing for this attack for many years. The reason they annexed Crimea is to prepare for this full scale invasion. And they were turning Crimea into a uh, military base for many years. And that's what allowed the full scale invasion to happen. That's, that's what allowed them to attack mainland Ukraine. Um, so I think these things are being overlooked and that's why I keep trying to explain uh, the Ukrainian history a bit and how uh, obviously you'll see some right-wing people uh, talking about, or even left-wing people sometimes, uh, talking about how this is the war is because of NATO. But it's like, yes, but Russia, I mean, not yes, but, you know, like uh, Russia has, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine way before NATO even existed. Uh, so in between 1917 and 1922, Russia multiple times invaded Ukraine until it forced it into the Soviet Union and NATO even didn't exist back then. So there's a, a lot of, um, there's a lot to understand about Russian-Ukrainian relationship and how uh, the Ukraine, how, they, how Russia tried to erase Ukrainian identity multiple, multiple times, and not just in the last century, but also before that with Catherine II, uh, trying to erase this Ukrainian identity. This has been happening for centuries. That's what I try to um, communicate to people when, when I can. And I think a lot of people don't realize how big Ukraine is and how developed it is. Um, certainly how people who, who didn't go to Ukraine, who haven't been to Kiev, they wouldn't realize how it's how modern it is uh, since 2014. It's developed so much since the revolution. It's very hipstery in some places. I lived in Podil, which is like the hipster capital of Kiev. Um, and um, I've noticed that there's so much love that Ukrainians have for the territory that you wouldn't always find in the UK. You know, some people... Um, tell me even like oh if the french invaded england like i would i uh, would get my beret and i'd just go and get a cross on straight away like you know they'd be welcoming uh, but ukrainians there's not in some places there's not so much love for their home city but ukrainians love ukraine so much and they love the land that they prepared with their bare hands to fight some russian tanks with, with no arms at all and that's what you saw happening in places like kherson so um, I think these are I think these are the, the main uh, sort of things that people don't um, realize, and also I think how multicultural Ukraine is. Uh, there's this whole myth that you might have come across that Ukrainians are this blonde people with blue eyes, and that's why the world is saving them, which is not true at all. Most Ukrainians have dark hair, myself included, and then we also have a half a million, nearly half a million of Crimean Tatars who are Muslim and um, bring incredible food to Ukraine, as, as, as Jess mentioned. And so there's that as well, that it's very multicultural. It's not all um, Christian people. It's uh, Muslims as well. It's a uh, different type, uh, different color of hair, different skin color. 
And uh, I think sometimes people also bring this uh, like mis, uh, myths and fake news about Russian language being banned and things like that. That's also very, really hurts me when I see it because people uh, certainly from some right wing media outlets in the UK like to spread, spread some misinformation that completely is, is completely not grounded in the truth. Thanks, Maria. Can I just ask Jez quickly? Um, British humour, how does that can you communicate that, that across the sort of cultural divide or is that is that is that a potential stumbling block what have, what have you found quite simply it depends on the on the standard of english um is is there uh, you know i i know lots of people who who have grown up on english television and english films um because it's it's very very widely available if you want it and and what's interesting for me is certainly when you speak to ukrainians those who've got uh, better English always seem to have a, a slight American accent. And um, it's because they, they've learnt English through watching television and film. So in terms of English humour and British humour, if, if, if their standard of English is good enough, it means they've grown up and they've learnt English through watching films and, and television. So they normally get it quite nicely, really. Well, thank you very much, Maria and Jez, for that. I think that really gave us um, something I'd been wanting to do for a while, understand a little bit more about uh, the Ukrainian experience in the UK. And especially, it's, it's great to hear that that, that um, Manchester is doing so much. Um, Dom Nichols, you've been listening to this conversation. Do you have any questions for Maria and Jez? Yes, please, just one. Uh, Jez, Maria, hi, thanks so much for, for coming on. Jez, you mentioned earlier on that there was a lack of wraparound support when uh, Ukrainian nationals arrived in in. Britain. Is that still the case? And separately, have the requirements changed as we as we get better understanding of what is required, what the what is what is needed, and maybe the priorities have shifted? Is that is that support? Um, has the support got better? Or is there is are there still gaps? So the, the, the simple answer to that is, yes, the gaps still exist. They, I, I touched on them in terms of language provision, and, and there has been some additional voluntary provision to, to assist with that. But in terms of local authority support, um, you know, they, they've kind of gone, well, we can signpost you to X and Y. It's, it's really a case that as time has gone on, hosts are better because they know and they understand what is expected of them. So you can't just turn around anymore and go, well, you've just got to provide accommodation, perhaps a bit of food, because every other host will turn around and go, that simply isn't the case. But what we can now do is say, well, if you're looking to sign up with a doctor in this area, this is the best doctor to go to. If you're wanting, if you're wanting language lessons, there's this and there's this. And, and one of the big things that Maria and I have worked on is, um, you know, being being that focal point, being that go-to. So we're, we're on various WhatsApp groups. People come to us and ask, ask us for advice all the time. And that's that's great for Manchester, but we know all over all over the country there are there are people who come together and, and you know the communities come together and they go right we will we will work out what are the common questions and what are the solutions to this so it, it's almost bypassing the local authority because they go well there are gaps in that and we just have to accept the gaps are there so what can we do as communities what can we do as individuals to help people. Thanks. And just one final one, if I may. Uh, Maria, your mum sounds uh, as if she has an innate understanding for all, all good food and the correct way of eating uh, eating these these things. Uh, her love of gravy and Yorkshire puddings, I, I thoroughly in, endorse. And so I think she'd be the, the perfect person if you could if, if you if you can do an experiment, please, with your with your mother and put in front of her a scone some whipped cream uh, or clotted cream sorry and and some jam and ask her to to put it together in what she considers the the correct way um could, but, you know this will this will sort out a debate here in in britain that's raged for centuries as to whether or not you put the cream on first and then the jam which is obviously the correct way or vice versa and i wonder if your mother could help us out and, and answer this once and for all please uh, sure i'll get her to do that i think she'll be uh, happy to be to to be the authority on this I think that's a very good idea because clearly we can't agree. And, and you know, I just say to listeners that other options other than Dom's do do exist. But you know, I think I think we need to do this and find out. So thank thank you, Dom, and thank you, Maria. Um, Jez and Maria, um, is there anything we haven't talked about or things you want to mention that you think are, are important for our listeners to hear? 
I, I think that's two things that, that certainly the first thing that I want to touch upon um, is, is sort of when we look back at the last year, there's, there's, it's been quite an interesting one for me um, because I, I, I fled the war, but I, I didn't even really understand what I was fleeing at the time. And you, you don't understand it. And I think one thing that I want to talk about is, is, is very quickly is, is about how it's very interesting. You see buildings, you see people, you see all of these things on the news and, and you feel a, a level of empathy, but it wasn't until that there was the, the missile attack on, on Venezia and we'd stood there, we'd stood there two or three months earlier, we'd, we'd taken photos and, and to see something that I actually physically recognised somewhere that I'd been, that, that really sort of brought it home to me. Um, so there was that and, and the other side of it, and, and I think Maria will probably have a, quick chat about this as well um is is the grief that you feel but also when i first got back to manchester uh, and also when i was in krakow I, I was terrified of planes um when we were leaving with her her dad there was a fighter jet going overhead and since that point it, it took it took months where if i heard a plane there was there was a brief couple of seconds where i worked out what sort of a plane it was and and how I, how I got my head around it. And it was, it's really strange, but certainly I think Maria will probably say something quickly about grief as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, yeah, the first thing is that uh, ha having this weird, so with Twitter and people being weird and weirder, as I'm sure a lot of in this conversation are aware, there's always this kind of like you can never really get things right. You know, people know that I fled uh, Ukraine, fled the war. And there are things like when you post um, something about, um, you know, when you, when you criticize something in the UK, it's almost like, you know, allowed to criticize because you're in safety and you're supposed to be grateful. It's like, but you're just trying to make things better. You're just trying to improve it for Ukrainians. And then when you, on the other hand, when you post, when I went to, when my mom, I took her to London, it was her first time in London. She was very excited. I took a photo of us too uh, by the River Thames and um, we were smiling in that photo and I posted it on Twitter and then people started saying why are you smiling have you forgotten that you're a refugee and I'm just like I just can't get it right you know it's like it's, people want to, you to be this kind of perfect victim and you know if you're smiling you, you, it doesn't mean that you've forgotten about what's happening but then there's also the grief of um, actually actually losing people so I lost my former colleague Max Levin uh, back last spring and that was the first person that I knew that died since the full-scale invasion and that was very hard to to accept and understand and the whole day was like the whole like a like a ghost version of myself and it was um, really really hard and even still it is hard to understand that people of my profession and my friends uh, can are at danger at any time but also losing my grandmother that I couldn't say goodbye because I had to leave so so abruptly but she uh, died she passed away on Christmas day and now I won't be able to say goodbye to her and I was very close with her so it's uh, it's it's really hard and even not being able to go to the funeral because funerals in Ukraine happen so fast I would never be able to get there in uh, in time. So it's losing people and also the pressure from the general public. Well, thank you very much, uh, Maria and Jez, for your time. Um, and very, very sorry to hear about your, your, your colleagues and your grandmother, Maria. That's, um, that's very, very sad. But thank you very much for joining us. And um, Dom, can I turn to you? You have a few more updates before we finish. Yeah, I just want to focus on something that Anthony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State, has said or reported by Politico. So we don't know. This was a private conversation, allegedly, that Politico reporting. So, you know, there's, there's this is opaque. We're not entirely sure. But it sounds as if Anthony Blinken was cautioning um, Ukraine's approach to retaking Crimea and was, was less effusive, by the sound of it, uh, in his support for... Um, Ukraine attacking to the east and retaking other territory than he was about the implications of, of any attack onto Crimea. So as I say, it, it, it's reported by Politico. It, it's all a bit murky. We're not entirely sure. Hopefully more detail will come out on that over this weekend because today is the first day of, a, of the three-day Munich Security Conference. Danielle, our colleague, friend and colleague Danielle Sheridan is is there. She'll be speaking to us on Monday. But the Munich Security Conference is a big, big, big moving part on the global uh, global security uh, diary. 
and um, so all the all the world uh, the 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 big uh, the big players are going to be there. President Zelensky has addressed it by video link. He's he's talked about the David versus Goliath fight uh, in the war. He's he's called on the Davids of the free world to support Ukraine, and said, "quote We need to hurry up to limit Russia's potential." Um, he's also asked whether it's time for Ukraine to be a fully fledged part of the EU, and says there's no alternative but for Ukraine to be. Uh, in NATO. So that is ongoing now. It's literally just started this this lunchtime, goes on till, till Sunday lunchtime, the Munich Security Conference. We'll hear more about that on Monday and hopefully there'll be some clarity for, uh, about uh, Antony Blinken's comments about US support for, for Ukraine uh, fighting back onto Crimea. Thank you very much, Dom Nichols. Um, Dom, can I just ask for your, well, we're getting to the end of our time together now. So can I just ask uh, Dom for your final thoughts? What will you be uh, looking to and thinking about in the next few days. And then as our guests, Maria and Jez, will come to you very quickly. But Dom Nichols first. Yeah, well, I'll be watching watching Munich. We'll get uh, reports of that on uh, on Monday, but also looking at Bakhmut. We know that Putin likes his anniversaries. We like, he, likes to, he likes this sort of to mark these dates. And Russia has been smashing itself against Bakhmut for months now. They will be desperate to have some kind of success or something they can laud as a success in line in 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 time for next friday the 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 year the start of this phase of of the war so i would expect the fighting around there to intensify over the next few days um now whether or not he they're capable i don't think they are capable of taking the taking the back moot but we will we'll see how how badly they want it um in the run-up to to friday thanks very much dom um, maria and Chez, just your very final thoughts please i don't, don't know who would like to go first um sure yeah well um i'm very much worried about what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks as was pointed out uh we don't know but there is hope that they don't have enough resources to do anything as big as what we had last year um so i'll be watching that obviously and uh hopefully uh, all of my friends and my family and most of ukraine will be all right but our um we jazz and i are working hard and we continue to work hard on um spreading the word about ukraine we write in a book and we are uh, preparing like talks for ukraine where we we can talk about Ukraine and we tell our journey and we tell what's going on in Ukraine. We're also working on um, investing in Ukraine where we will help British businesses invest into Ukraine once Ukraine wins. So it depends on how, how soon that will be. Hopefully it will be this year. Uh, how soon that will be and that we'll be able to launch this and uh, uh, help. Of course, we all both Des and I are planning to go back to Ukraine, and as soon as uh, as soon as it wins, we'll help rebuild it. We'll help. Uh, I'll help cover uh, what's going on. We'll help communicate what Ukraine needs right now. We're planning to make a documentary about this as well. And there are some interesting events that are happening in the UK that are to do with Ukraine. We, in March, we have England versus Ukraine uh, happening in London. Uh, the football match. We're going to be there. We're going to be cheering on Ukraine. But obviously, there's Eurovision coming up in may that's all got to be dedicated to ukraine because uh it wasn't for ukraine winning it wouldn't be happening in the in the uk you know we i think it's important to make sure that ukraine is represented uh, at that event does um yeah no i think i think that's that's uh pretty much it we're very lucky i think we're in the future maria is very kindly paid lots of money to charity and we're booked on the first train from kiev to crimea and also the first train from Kiev to Mariupol, so I'm very, very excited about that. Um, and one final thing, I'd like to just give a big shout out to Paul Nyland, who runs Lifeline Ukraine. Um, please look them up. It's something that's going to be vitally important ongoing. It's Ukraine's um, primary and only suicide prevention hotline, and it provides huge amounts of uh, mental health support for Ukrainians who will have PTSD and issues uh, beyond that point, certainly beyond the war. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. 
So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.